Chapter 30, The Psychology of Religion by Edwin Diller Starbuck. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 30, A General View of the Line of Religious Growth. While analyzing and organizing the details in the preceding chapters, they have now and then seemed to become transparent and to furnish glimpses into the operation of spiritual forces. This we have already stopped here and there to consider as we have proceeded. Now we are ready to pull the threads together a little closer and to make the details more organic. Omitting the minor differences, we may gather up from the various groups of persons we have studied those features which will give us the most comprehensive picture of the usual trend of religious development. The character of the phenomenon at different stages of life divides religious growth naturally into three great periods, childhood, adolescence, and maturity. These periods we found to be equally distinct in each of the three different classes of persons. In all, they were so pronounced as to set them forth in unqualified terms as periods which belong naturally to individual growth. To be artificially accurate for the sake of clearness, we have childhood up to about 12, youth extending from this age to about 25, and after that maturity. Seen in its most general aspect, the end of religious growth seems to be to make the credulous and receptive child over into a full-grown spiritual man or woman. The records show at last four distinct lines of advance from childhood to maturity. The first and most prominent of these is that which transfers the center of activity from self-interest to interest in the whole, of which the self is but a part. The person comes to live in the larger life outside himself. The child emerges from the unknown sea, bringing with him racial tendencies. Among these is the brute instinct of self-preservation, which shows itself in anger, sensitiveness, jealousy, and the like. Everything goes to contribute to the nucleus of a self. The value of religion to the child is in what it can bring to him. The same tendency appears in the early religion of different peoples. In the Vedas, for instance, the hymns are full of supplications for personal favors from the gods, for protection for wealth and offspring. Mature religion, on the contrary, shows a strenuous advance towards losing the self in service. The interests of the individual become intrinsically bound up in those of society. He now recognizes himself as part of a larger spiritual world to which he is subject, and he finds life only by fitting into an internal plan. He comes to feel himself in harmony with the spiritual life about him, and responds to it with the feelings of faith, love, reverence, and dependence. Self-interest becomes transformed into love of God. The second line of advance is that the individual tends to become a positive spiritual force. The child is in a receptive attitude towards its surroundings and dependent on them. Throughout early life it is held in the lap of society as at first in that of its mother. But the mature person must stand as an organic part of the social whole, a positive factor in it, and find his life in actively contributing to it. The way to mature life, we have found, consists largely in entering upon a life of activity, but it seems to be nature's plan in the third place to produce a mature person who not only acts, but who acts wisely. He must possess a high degree of insight, must see things for himself. With the child, religion consists largely in precepts of dogmas in the authority of parents, church, and religious code. Religion is all external to him. God is a being above and beyond him. This must all be worked over as a part of his own consciousness. At first there is no insight, no immediacy to any of his religious experiences. Although he instinctively asserts it, he does not even consciously appreciate the fact of his own selfhood. 
All this must be changed. The person must come to apperceive religious truth, feel for himself its inherent worth, make it his own by living it from within. In mature life he comes more and more to feel himself a medium through which universal life expresses itself. Again, a persistent element in religion is that the person reaches out after fuller life. It seems that the instinct of self-enlargement and the delight in self-expression do not cease even in maturity. There is, however, a transformation in the quality of the impulse. At first, it is egocentric. In adult life, self-interest seems to have become almost eliminated. As life advances, the regulative impulses which keep the instincts in check and hold them within their proper limits are constantly active. In youth, these have grown into the organic feeling of the sense of sin, and in adult life they still persist in the abstract ideal of self-abnegation. Under the influence of these forces we find the impulse toward self-expression and self-enlargement becoming refined in maturity into a craving for righteousness, a desire to be all and do all for the glory of God and the service of man. Now, what of the period intervening between childhood and maturity, that of adolescence? Its function is simply to affect those transformations described above. All the fermentation, unrest, instability, and sporadic outbursts are indications on the surface that a personality is forming beneath that has a capacity for self-direction and independent insight. During childhood, life has been determined largely by heredity and imitation. The infant comes on the scene with most of the peculiarities of its race and even of its immediate parentage already formed. Its nervous system is predetermined to function in certain ways which will make it in general act and feel and think as do those around it. To intensify this conformity there is the instinct of imitation. From its first year the child mimics the ways of those about it. It doubtless picks up unconsciously the little things which give tone and quality to its life. The instinct is nature's way of saying that the child must conform to its type that during these early years of tutelage it must drink in the wisdom of its kind. But if society is to hold its own and is to develop, this nucleus of receptivity must be transformed into a positive unit with force and insight of its own. Adolescence is the time when this new personality is formed. If we take into account all the surface indications, they give unmistakable evidence that the fundamental thing underlying them all is the birth of selfhood, the awakening of a self-conscious personality. This is one of the central facts that bring harmony and unity into the multiplicity of adolescent phenomena. Another essential fact that must likewise be kept in mind is the existence of a social organism, fixed in its ways and relentless in its demands, to which the budding nucleus of a self must in some way adapt itself. If we bear in mind these two facts, they will help to bring simplicity where otherwise there would be only complexity and confusion. Adolescence divides itself naturally into two periods, the first of which extends, we may say roughly, from about 12 to 18, the second from about 18 to 25. The first division is that in which the spontaneous life of will and emotion bursts forth. It comes in a great wave at about 15 or 16, preceded by a smaller one at about 12, and followed by another at about 17 or 18. We are to look upon this welling up of new life as a hereditary outcrop. Biologically, it is remotely connected with the awakening of the reproductive life. This has been sufficiently discussed in Chapter 12. The point of interest for us here is that a new personality is taking shape.
This outburst often comes suddenly and unexpectedly, even though sometimes elicited by songs, prayers, sermons, and religious ceremonies. It has a large element of spontaneity. When it bursts forth, it is the first announcement to the person of the store of energy which has lain dormant within him. He has become a center through which racial instincts express themselves. The sea of feeling out of which he was born has begun to break through the nucleus of itself. It is a great event in religious growth when he first becomes conscious of the life that is stirring within him. The consciousness of a self is frequently the purest and almost the only intellectual element involved in the awakening. One person who saw his image reflected in a shop window had this sudden disclosure. I am I. I have a life of my own to live. For some time afterwards, he tells us, the sense of personal responsibility for life and conduct weighed heavily on his boyish mind. It is instructive to note that in racial development this discovery of self has also been an important event. Following upon the Vedic period referred to above, the religious development of the Hindus were sometimes centered about this one fact. It was of such significance as to underlie the whole religious philosophy. That art thou was the constantly reiterated message of the Brahmin priests, by which they meant to disclose the fact of the existence of the self and its oneness with Brahm. We read in one of the Upanishads, There is this city of God, the body, and in it the palace, the small lotus of the heart, and in it that small self. Now, what exists within that small self that is to be sought for and to be understood? Whatever there is of God, here is the world. Whatever has been or will be, that is contained within it. Those who depart from hence have discovered the self, and those true desires for them there is freedom in all the worlds. In adolescence, the self becomes the point of reference for experience. Everything is judged in terms of one's own consciousness. The conception of self may indeed be but dimly appreciated, but it exists as a subconscious fact without sufficient force to influence conduct. The youth insists on living his life, seeing things for himself. During childhood, he was held in the straitjacket of social custom, which habit had made reflex mechanical and unconscious. He now insists on seeing the reason for the things he does. But the adolescent finds himself face to face with a system of things which is already established. He is born into a society in which the standard of activity is already set. Law and custom have made it fixed and rigid. He has likewise come into a world order whose laws are changeless. The demands of the entire system of things outside of him are relentless. The interesting situation has now arisen in which the new personality has to adapt itself in some way to this external system. The possibilities which open up when this crisis is reached are as varied as the diversity of temperaments and the peculiarities of environment, both past and present, which enter into it. Although the resultant phases of experience are numerous, there are certain well-marked types. If by chance the mental horizon which opens up to the youth harmonizes with his environment, a thing which appears to happen somewhat rarely, there may result an uneventful development. The person may go on progressively assimilating the life about him, and merge into vigorous and healthy manhood or womanhood without knowing how or when. Often the new life expresses itself readily in motor terms, and the person enters directly into a life of helpfulness and activity. He acquires by trying and failing and trying again the wisdom which others gain through rational channels.
It is more often the case that there is more or less friction in the process of adjusting the self to the whole. Persons often try, but try for a time in vain, and are thrown back into a state of inactivity, indifference, and carelessness. The frequency of storm and stress, which begins in this early period of adolescence, is evidence that the self is feeling its way and forcing its way into clear light. The soul is torn by unhappiness and discontent. It struggles after an idea which society holds up for it, but which it imperfectly appreciates. All this is the friction of embryonic selfhood against the crystallized forms which society has thrown about it. Doubts and questions are likewise a result of the attempt to square this acquired nucleus of a self with the world outside, to select and assimilate that which is best adapted to its peculiar needs. Although the frequency of storm and stress and doubt may indicate imperfections in training and in physical and environmental conditions, which we may hope eventually will be overcome, still in some sense we must regard them as indissolubly bound up in the process of mental and spiritual acquisition. The facts in the foregoing pages seem conclusive that even when persons have been carefully reared and are full of wholesome habits, even when wise counsel is available, they have, notwithstanding, undergone adolescent struggles. It seems a rare chance, when we take into account what the adolescent development means, that there should not be some difficulty in stress. Within the space of a few years, a wonderful transformation is to be wrought. The youth is suddenly to come into the full use of those powers, which are the highest product of racial development. During childhood they lay dormant, ready to function. Now, in so short a time, a marvelous complex psychic life is to be worked into a system within itself, and also to be perfectly coordinated with those modes of thought and activity which have already existed. If we take into account that all this development is reached out into an entirely new sphere, we can appreciate somewhat the uncertainty and stability that must attend the first full functioning of those powers concerned in religious insight. When we combine with the fact of the range of development now to be transversed in a brief space of time, the other fact of the difficulty of acquiring any sort of new knowledge whatever, we are in a position to understand the improbability that a person shall pass smoothly through adolescence and shall, at the same time, realize the full possibility of manhood and womanhood. Society has set certain religious standards which, although the mature person can live in accordance with them with some degree of ease and composure, seem to the youth entirely beyond his comprehension. The child may be already the embodiment of righteousness, but in the attempt to understand spiritual truth, holding it off for the first time to view it, preparatory to a fuller comprehension of it, it is full of strangeness and mystery. Still, it is necessary for the time to objectify the spiritual truth, either consciously or subconsciously. If one is to attain a higher order of life in which there is spiritual insight and personal forcefulness, the prevalence of religious doubt and storm and stress seems to be the result of natural selection. Those persons have been chosen out as most fit to exist who do not take things simply on authority, but who gain for themselves a rational hold on truth. Nothing is really understood at first hand until it has been called up into consciousness and then worked over into experience. As childhood is the time for the acquisition of good habits through imitation and conformity, so nature has made another wise provision by which each person may not only comprehend the best the race has produced, but bring to it his or her bit of improvement. Adolescence is the time for those divergencies from conventional types which enlarge the range 
of human wisdom and experience. If the line of self-expression of each person is slightly divergent with custom, it may result in friction, but it adds with all to the enlargement and enrichment of human experience. In racial development, likewise, doubt, storm, and stress, and reactionary tendencies have constantly arisen. A period of skepticism arose in the post-Vedic period of India at a time when the Brahmin code tended to become crystallized. Developing side by side with the extreme dogmatic tendencies in Greek thought during the 3rd and 2nd centuries before Christ, arose the skeptics, who either called into question or rejected the whole of the philosophical systems which had been set up. Among religious organizations, similar reactionary tendencies have been frequent. When any organization begins to crystallize, a fraction of it starts off in a new direction with the fresh emphasis of some vital principle. The reasoning, doubting, egoistic, self-asserting period seems to have the double function of calling out the individual into self-possession and personal insight, and of sorting, refining, enriching, enlarging the fund of racial experience. These phenomena we have been considering usually begin in the early period of adolescence, coincident with the emotional awakening which announces the beginning of the new life. The second division of adolescence, from 18 to 25 or thereabouts, is one of rational readjustments. It is a relatively quiet formative period. There is less disturbance at the surface, fewer outbreaks of emotion and less enthusiasm. Feelings of a distinctly religious nature are rare. There is, however, doubtless just as much real development going on as during earlier adolescence. It is a time of sifting and readjusting forces turned loose in one's nature during the earlier years. It is the nascent period of doubt and of intellectual questionings. It is likewise the period of most frequent alienation and revolt. These latter years of adolescence seem to be nature's alembic in which the distilling is done, which brings to mature life the best of all things stirred up in earlier youth. It is one of the most important, although one of the least eventful periods. Finally, after some years of striving, analyzing, building, following up bits of insight, working out individual point of view, the feelings come into play and give it worth and sanction. This is the period of reconstruction. Usually the individual hold on truth is recognized to be the same essentially as that which all men possess, yet unlike that of anyone, because it is a revelation to one's own deepest consciousness. It is the heart and essence of that which in childhood was only form and observance. The person becomes at least a sympathizer with the world wisdom a cooperator in social institutions. After sifting religious truth, he works it over into life. He enters into real fellowship with the world of spiritual things. Religion is now lived from within. Religious awakenings come most frequently, we have seen, at about the age of puberty, in a most rapid growth in weight. The principles underlying the coincidence have been sufficiently considered in chapter 12. The fact that spiritual upheavals center mostly in the early years of adolescence rests ultimately upon the new developments then taking place in connection with the reproductive system. The physiological birth brings with it the dawning of all those spiritual accompaniments which are necessary to the fullest social activities. One of my students, in an unpublished research, has found that the recognition of the rights of others by children has a sudden increment at about the age of puberty. This is the time biologically when one enters into deep relation with racial life. 
In a certain sense, religious life is an irradiation of the reproductive instinct. That there is a kinship between religion and sex has been fully recognized recently by most sociologists, alienists, and psychiatrists. The interpretation of the connection between them is usually left in such a way, however, as to warrant a few words in regard to their relations in fully developed religion. We are not to suppose that in finding the remote condition under which a relation sprang up, we have found the clue to the nature of the fully developed product. Even if it is true that religion was at first intimately bound up in those duties and ceremonies which are the outgrowth of sex, in its latter stages it may have entirely changed its character. Although the oversight of this fact has led to considerable misapprehension in tracing the growth of religion, the error is now happily being recognized. Professor Caird, for example, in his Evolution of Religion, puts the matter in a clear and forceful way. The phenomena of the beginning of life are now to be regarded as the causes of the phenomena that follow. We cannot, from an examination of the first stage of a development, pronounce any final judgment for good or ill upon the latter results of it. By studying the larva in its habits and structure, we can pronounce nothing with safety beforehand about the nature of the pupa and insect which are to continue its existence. The psychical life of man is an organism which carries with it a unity of its own, a synthesis of its complex elements which is more or less independent of the conditions here and there in its growth which call it out. We have to distinguish constantly between the causes and conditions of growth, the sexual life, although it has left its impress on fully developed religion, seems to have originally given the psychic impulse which called out the latent possibilities of development, rather than to have furnished the raw material out of which religion was constructed. The facts we have been studying lead to this conclusion. The answers to the definite point in the question list on the relation in individual experience between the sexual and the moral and religious life were usually very frank. In no instance was the reproductive instinct admitted to be helpful to spiritual attainment, nor was a religious life expressed in terms of it. There is no case in which the matter is discussed, but that regards the instinct in question as a hindrance to the spiritual life unless it is curbed. The checking rather than the free expression seems to be the essential thing. Although the reproductive instinct may be primal, it seems to have been entirely superseded as a direct factor in religious growth by other elements. These latter themselves form a regulative instinct which acts upon the sexual impulse as a check. It seems that the two have become so far differentiated, the separation between them has grown so complete, that in the latter stages of development they have different functions, and the interest of religion demands a suppression rather than the radiation of the reproductive instinct. The sexual instinct, which continues healthy and strong to conserve biological ends, has, from a spiritual standpoint, become a mere incident in growth. It should constantly be borne in mind that religion has not been nourished from a single root, but that, on the contrary, it has many sources. Among the facts in preceding chapters, there are evidences that other deep-rooted instincts besides that of sex have been operative in religious development. Out of the instinct of self-preservation and the desire for fullness of life on the physiological plane, there seem to have arisen, by progressive refinement and irradiation, the religious impulse toward spiritual self-enlargement. Again, physiological hunger, an instinct even more primal than that of sex, winds into appropriativeness, delight in intellectual conquest, 
and finally into a craving for spiritual knowledge. That is, the religious feeling of hungering after righteousness may be in some sense an irradiation of the crude instinct of food-getting. Pleasure in activity, growing out of an overflow of nervous energy, seems to also have been lifted to the plane of the spiritual life, and, in part, to underlie self-expression and joy in service as religious impulses. In the beginnings of religion, these instincts existed side by side, and, in their functioning, brought into activity the lower nervous centers. The process of religious development has consisted in arousing discharges from these through the higher psychic centers, and in working them into a higher synthesis. The significance which each of these lines of radiation has in religion at different stages of its development is probably, as we have seen, a varying quantity. The awakening of anyone may give an impulse to the rest. It can be said with certainty in regard to the sudden increment at the beginning of youth in the perfection of the reproductive system and the great physiological transformation that comes with it that it is the most direct source of the altruistic side of religion and of the social impulses, including even delight in divine kinship. Furthermore, and that is the point which concerns us in this connection, it opens the door to the exercise of the other impulses which are not of sexual origin. The person is suddenly thrown into society. New obligations are forced upon him. In the stress and strain of making the various adjustments incident on becoming a social being, all the latent powers of his nature are called into activity. Now that the social life has been actively aroused, it nourishes itself through various avenues. The person finds that he bears definite relations to the world of things and of spiritual forces, and out of the appreciation of these relations springs up a longing to comprehend them in the sense of awe, reverence, and dependence. It is in this contact with external nature, perhaps, as much as from any other source, that the aesthetic element of religion is fed, after once it has been awakened. The sense of duty, which is, as we have found, one of the most prominent and persistent factors of the spiritual life, seems to have arisen especially out of the relations which are non-sexual. The complications of industry, trade, and government establish rights and duties which become centers of reference for individual conduct. During childhood, while the reproductive functions are lying dormant, social contact is instilling moral feelings into the child, which sow themselves already in very early life. During adolescence, when religious feelings disappear, and there is a chance to sift the spiritual life to the last degree, the most prominent thing is duty, standing out clear and strong. It is the moral impulse that is cherished at this time, while the person finds it necessary, on the other hand, to curb the reproductive instinct in order to attain the fullest spiritual development. In short, the coincidences in time between the physiological and spiritual awakenings indicate, when the various lines of evidence are in, that the two may have been originally closely related but that at present time they are so far differentiated as to have no apparent connection. The reproductive instinct is one of several roots from which religion has been nourished. Since the ends reached by conversion and by the less violent processes of growth are the same, it is worth our while to ask wherein the difference lies. In the first place, it is clear that the difference is often simply one of terminology, we saw that spontaneous awakenings are a very common experience, and that persons familiar with the customary revival methods will describe an awakening as a conversion, while others mention a similar experience as simply an event in the normal course of development. 
inasmuch as the accompanying phenomena, the essential process involved, and the results are similar. We are doubtless safe in saying that conversion is a condensed form of adolescent development. Society seems to have unconsciously recognized the ends to be attained by religious growth, and to have embodied them in the rites of confirmation and conversion. Even among savage races there are customs at puberty or soon afterward of knocking out the teeth, tattooing, circumcision, changing the form of dress, and the like, the essential purpose of all of which is the initiation of the child into manhood. There is every evidence that the convert in many instances attains, in some measure, quality of life that he might have reached by gradually maturing. The method which society uses to bring into sharp contrast the little world of self in which he has been living, and the ideal of love into which he must enter. It brings together all the habits and desires of his former life, which tend to conserve his selfhood, and lumps them as sin, which he must once for all renounce. It sets in contrast the ideal of perfect goodness, infinite love, and complete happiness through self-sacrifice, which is yet far out of reach, but which through faith can be attained. It pictures the fatal consequences of his present course, and the possible well-being to himself and his kind if he repent. The power of public opinion is brought to bear to increase the strain. The force of his emotional nature is called into activity through eloquence and the rhythm and harmony of music. He once for all renounces his little self and pitches his tent beneath the stars. He passes from his own narrow sphere and becomes a citizen of the world. His ideas converge into an ideal. His feelings are called into play and he loves and trusts this ideal and strives toward it. The secret of the realization of this new quality of life may be found in part in the attitude of the person. He becomes professedly what he aspires to be. But who can tell what really happens in one's consciousness when one turns seriously into communion with one's deeper self? If we turn to our crude analogy of nerve cells and connections, which we know to be involved in the character and quality of thinking and feeling, we may get a definite picture at whatever cost of accuracy. Granting that the highest consciousness is conditioned by the most highly imperfected organized nervous system, that new ideas imply the functioning of new areas in the nervous system, that the nerve elements that are concerned in spiritual insight are already formed and lying ready to function. If only brought into the right coordination, it is conceivable that during the intense experiences attending conversion, under the heat of the emotional pressure brought to bear, a harmony is struck among these elements which it might have taken months or even years to accomplish if one had been left helpless to grope in doubt and uncertainty. The analysis of the cases before us bears out, from the psychic side, this hypothesis and shows that conversion is often to some extent in anticipation of the direction of adolescent development. It must not be forgotten, however, that the convert has usually still to overcome the same adolescent difficulties as does the person whose growth is gradual. To say that the convert anticipates the growth of the other does not mean at all that steps in growth have been dropped out. One suddenly reaches the stature of a man religiously only if, through the gradual and natural maturing of his powers, he is potentially already a man. The child may map out in the rough the end to be attained. The solid structure has yet to be built. The awakening of the association centers which gives glimpses into the higher life is one step toward manhood or womanhood. The other more serious step is to bring it about that the new life shall be completely coordinated with the old and that it shall become habitual and easy. 
Adolescence is a preparation for manhood. The functioning of the whole series of years of youth is to produce, out of the dawning of spiritual life, with its sense of newness, its uncertainty, faltering, doubting, no matter in what way it first shows itself, a stable and symmetrical manhood and womanhood. End of chapter 30